If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Romans 3 and verses 9 to 20. As you look at this today, under the title, Our True Condition. Our True Condition. One of the important things in being a good doctor is being able to make a good diagnosis of the problem that a patient has. And the Apostle Paul has a good spiritual doctor is seeking in these early chapters of Romans to show his people the right diagnosis of the condition that they have. And as we come today to chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, we're reaching the climax of Paul's argument. And here we get a very clear diagnosis of the natural human condition. And when I say the natural condition, I mean the condition that we're born with, who we are by nature, before grace impacts our lives. And this is the natural condition of all people. Not a few, but all people. Now, the opening verse here, verse 9, gives us a very good summary of where we stand. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now, previously back in verse 1, Paul had spoken of how the Jews were better off. The Jews were in a privileged position because they had God's Word and other things. But here Paul is speaking about where people stand with God. And when it comes to our standing with God, just being a Jew did not make anyone any better off. And Paul's summary of the condition of all mankind by nature is that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All people are under sin. That's his diagnosis of the problem of the human condition. It's common to all people. It's what we're born with. We're born under the the guilt and under the power of sin. That's our condition. Now, let's Look as Paul expands this diagnosis a wee bit further. And the first thing we see is sin's corruption in verses 10 to 12. And what Paul shares here in all of this section from verse 10 right down to verse 18 are quotes from different Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Isaiah are thrown in there as well. And the first few verses here are taken from what we were singing earlier, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, which are nearly identical at the the beginning of them. Look what he says in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, maybe you think, well, that's not true of me. Well, this is what the Apostle Paul is quoting from Scripture what is true of the natural human condition of all people. The whole direction of these people's lives is naturally twisted and bent away from God. They don't seek God. He says they have turned aside, and they have become worthless. Now, what does that mean? We need to be careful what it means. The word worthless translated here carries the idea of being morally corrupt, morally being useless, morally being of no value. And what is being said is that people, due to their corruption of sin, 
There's nothing that they can do in themselves that is of spiritual good in the sight of God. Paul is teaching that there is nothing that people can contribute to their own salvation. Sin has such an impact on people, even as we're born, sin has such an impact, we are by nature enslaved by this sin. It speaks of people's understanding there in verse 11. This corruption affects how a person thinks. Due to sin, how a person is put together mentally, how they think is not right. Their ability to have a right understanding of God, of salvation, of life, has been disabled by sin. When I am recording on my phone the morning devotions or other things, I put my phone into airplane mode. I discovered early on the first lockdown, I didn't do that, and I got phone calls in the middle of things, I had to start again. And so I put my phone in airplane mode. And when I put it in airplane mode, there are certain things within my phone are disabled. I can't join Wi-Fi, I can't join Bluetooth. There's things, and the other day, I forgot my phone was in airplane mode and was getting very frustrated that a text message wouldn't go in that. It had been disabled. It's the same of us because of sin. Certain things have been disabled. And our understanding, our right understanding of God, ourselves, sin, salvation, has been disabled. And because of sin, no one by themselves can grasp this truth. Now, what we have in these verses is what theologians call total depravity. Now, that doesn't mean that people are as sinful as they could be, but it does mean that sin has impacted every part of our being. Our understanding, our desires, our will have all been enslaved by sin. Paul calls this in Ephesians 2 as being dead, dead in our trespasses and sin. It isn't that we are spiritually sick and need a wee bit of a tonic. The Bible teaches we're spiritually dead and in need of resurrection. We need the miracle of resurrection upon our souls. We need that which is dead within us to be brought to life. We need to be what Jesus called being born again, being made spiritually alive. And notice here this condition is absolute. It is true of everyone naturally. That is why people, this is what people are like until they are transformed by the grace of God. Sin's corruption. And then secondly, we have sin's wickedness in verses 13 to 15. And there are five parts of the body mentioned here, and each seems to show a, a progression in this wickedness. Look at these verses. Let's begin in verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. That speaks of it being something that is deadly and something that's stinking. They use their tongues to deceive. People by nature are not honest. The venom of ass, that's a snake, is under their lips. Their lips are basically spouting out what is 
poison. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Mouths hurt people. The words that come out curse people. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There are people, if they had the right situation, would truly hurt others. And that's not a pretty picture. That's an awful picture. But that is a picture of who we are by nature. Now, it's true that none of us have reached our full potential of wickedness because in this world, God's restraining hand holds back people's sin, our conscience, the influence of family, the influence of government, fear of consequences. All those things hold back the influence of sin in people's lives. But nevertheless, this is an accurate description of who we are by nature. People with our mouths, people with our actions, who would want to hurt other people. If our circumstances were different, if we didn't have the many good influences that we have had in our lives, what you and I could be capable of if God's restraining hand was taken off is absolutely frightening. When you hear about very wicked people, you hear of people who are like serial killers or people who go on these shooting sprees or people who are terrorists or people involved in other very heinous crimes. We like to distance ourselves from them as if they're away over there. They're, they're monsters. They're not a human being like you and me. They're, they're so different. But do you think of the most evil people that have ever existed? People like Hitler, people like Saddam Hussein, people like Jeffrey Dahmer, that mass murderer. These people were born with the same nature as you and I. They didn't get an extra do dose of sin. We were all born with the same sin. This is what we are by nature. And this is what we would be and do if God didn't restrain us. Sin's corruption, sin's wickedness. And then thirdly, we have sin's misery in verses 16 to 18. In verse 16, it says, In their paths are ruin and misery. Now, this ruin and misery could be what they deliver to other people, but it's also very likely what they experience themselves in life. The point is that this sinful life will be surrounded by this ruin and misery. Why is this world messed up? Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? Why is there such sadness? Because we live in a world that has been messed up by sin. Verse 17, and the way of peace they have not known. This is not a, a life that's filled with contentment. It's not a life of satisfaction. There's always something missing in this life, something more that is needed. And this is a life that is marked by a constant restlessness. 
There's always something added that has to come to, to keep people content. We've been watching this weekend that really good film, Cool Runnings, the story of the Jamaican bobsleigh team, which I think appeared at the Safari Supper uh, at Christmas time. And the Jamaican bobsleigh team, and there's an incident in that film where the coach who had won gold medals and then had cheated at Olympics previously is speaking to the, the main driver of the bobsleigh team. And he's asking basically why the coach did what he did. And they got onto this conversation about gold medals. And this young fellow just would love to emulate his father, who previously won a gold medal in sprinting. And a very interesting thing is said. If you are not content and complete without a gold medal, you will not be content and complete with the gold medal. In other words, just adding something else into your life. If you're not ready at peace, just adding something else will not bring that state of contentment. Augustine, the early church father, he says, my heart is restless, O God, until it finds rest in you. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the, the biggest problem of all. This is what all these other sins come from. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs tells us. And a life which is marked by such a reverence of God will be a, a life that has fruitfulness and blessing. But where there is no fear of God, it will be a life of foolishness. It will be a life that might promise much, but in the end deliver so little. And we need to understand what's being talked about here with having no fear of God is ungodliness. And ungodliness and unrighteousness go hand in hand. When God is taken out of the picture, a life of sin will follow. People have tried in the past, I think it was maybe John Major who tried a, a back to basics campaign about morality and integrity within politics, and they had to scrap it because of all the scandals that soon came to light. When God is not in the right place in the picture, morality will not be there. Right living will not be there. And this leads to a life of misery. Sin's corruption, sin's wickedness, sin's misery. And finally, sin's condemnation, verses 19 to 20. And here we come to the very climax which Paul has been leading up to here in these early part of Romans. It says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And this is Paul's purpose in the, this opening section of the book of Romans, that every mouth will be silenced, that the weight of evidence against people will be seen to be so strong they cannot put up a defense. All are held accountable to God. The whole world is seen as guilty before God. 
The problem Paul knew was that people measure themselves against others, and they appear okay. You remember the, the story of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector that went up to pray in the temple, and the Pharisee talked about all the wonderful things he did, and he compared himself to the sins of this tax collector, and he felt good. When we measure ourselves against God, though, it is a very different story. In Luke 5, we have Jesus having an encounter with Peter. Peter is fishing. You remember the story? He fished all night. They caught nothing. Jesus sends them out to fish again and to lay the net down the other side. Peter was a fisherman. Jesus was not a fisherman. Peter thought he knew better. He basically rebuked the Lord for telling him to do this, but he does it anyway. Then he has that great catch of fish. Jesus shows him something of his own glory. And this is what Peter says to Jesus. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. What made him aware at that point of his sin? It wasn't words. It was a sense of the glory of the divine Christ shining through. When Jesus did that miracle, he became aware of his majesty, which made him aware of his own sin. Let me put it this way. The, the truth about Christ, the glory of Christ for Peter, at that moment was no longer a theory that he just had heard about but was an experience that he felt. And we need not just to hear the words that this is a holy, majestic, pure, and glorious God. We need more than the words. We need a sense of the divine, a sense of the majesty of God, a sense like what Isaiah had in the temple when he says, I'm ruined. It's only when we have a sense of God in our souls that then we realize this description here in Romans, this description in Romans is true of me. This is me by nature. I am this person who by nature turns from God. I am this person by nature who is confused and mixed up. I am this person by nature is unkind and cruel to others. I'm this person who by nature goes my own way into misery. Look what he says in verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That's God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The problem was some of the Jews thought that the law of God was a ladder through which they climbed to heaven. One good deed after another would take you up another rung. And the message that Paul is giving here, listen, the law of God is not a ladder by which we climb to heaven. The law of God is a signpost showing us that we cannot get to heaven by what we do, we have to go through Jesus. 
Some of us coming to church this morning had to be diverted because of the closure in the diamond. We need to be diverted spiritually. Here were people thinking, if I do this, that, the other thing, I'm a good enough person, I'll be right with God. The law of God is not a means to heaven. The law of God is saying to us, you are guilty. You don't measure up. You don't reach God's standard. You don't keep the commandments perfectly, which is what required. It's a signpost to point us to Jesus. And if you are a Christian, this is one of the reasons as you grow in your Christian life, particularly the early years, but this should be true of all our Christian life, the more we come to understand God's Word, the more we come to understand God's law, the more we come to understand God, we should feel as if we're getting worse. And it's not that we're becoming worse people. It's that because we're becoming more and more conscious of our sinfulness as we are given the light of God's truth shining upon us. So if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian over years, and you feel at times maybe you're getting worse, that's a healthy sign. That's a good sign. When you're not being made conscious of your faults and your failings and your sin, when you're not being made conscious of that, that's when you need to worry. But the way of the Christian life is the way of grace. We've been spending quite a few weeks, and thank you for persevering in this, looking at these chapters. Basically, Paul's purpose in these first few chapters is to take away any sense of self-confidence, any sense of self-righteousness. And basically, for us to be confronted with this truth, you're a sinner. You fall short. Your only hope is the Savior. May God Give us the grace as we come next week, moving from the bad news, focusing a bit more on the good news. So today we've seen sin's corruption, sin's wickedness, sin's misery, sin's condemnation. Next week, we'll see sin's answer. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for how so often sin has such an impact upon us that, Father, we even fail to accept what Your Word says about us. And Father, we have put our own thinking, our own assessment of our lives above what Your Word teaches us. But Father, here we're taught today that we are a sinful and fallen people, and this sin is not a few bad things. It's something that has got into every part of our lives. And our only hope has to be Jesus. Father, may what we have thought about today make us feel empty in ourselves. But if what we heard at the very beginning of the service, the invitation for those who are thirsty, those who are hungry, to come to Jesus and to be filled. In his name we pray. Amen.